My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right, welcome back. I'm Rich, Rich Morales. This is my co-host, Jay. What's up, Jay? Today, we're excited to have with us our good friend. Uh, just can't wipe the smile off my face right now. Uh, James Willock's here. Let me say a little bit about James Willock. Um, he's also known as Big Game James. Big Game James. We'll tell you why later. Mm. All right, Big Game James. Uh, oh, man. And when you look at that, you know, it's nice. The tie, the outfit, you know, not the, not the outfit, but the... Uh, you know, the nice dark black beard and everything else, you know, you wouldn't think that James at one time was sentenced to 34 years to life at the age of 19, at the age of 19. And, and he just got out less than two months ago, uh, the age of 47. Right. <laughs> We're going to get into what that experience is like, uh, incarcerated for 28 years. You were de- he was denied parole suitability um, after um, 20, 23 years uh, for five years. And then just this last, uh, what was it, April? April, found March, March March found suitable for parole in March. And um, he went to the board of parole hearings last April, was found suitable, as I shared. The state requires a person sentenced to a life sentence to wait up to 150 days before he can walk out of prison. James is one of the freest men that I've ever met. We always talk about him being the most transformed man that that we've ever met. Mm. Um, He worked with high school students while incarcerated, college students, um, junior high students. As a, as a long-term offender, peer mentor, he's a transformational coach. He was a, um, uh, a transformational coach in, in, in to many guys going through our group that was on the inside called Phoenix Alliance, where we taught uh, vision casting, vision, bu- vision building. And James, is, for as long as I've known him, been a poet. And hopefully you can share something with us today. But I want to welcome you to the Prison Post, James. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. All yeah. right, man. We can say that again. So yeah, let's get sure. right to the big game, James. Yeah, so big game, James. Let me see. It was a little over five months ago that you and I were sitting on a, a prison yard. Yes. And uh, you were uh, offering me some coaching. Yeah. About relapse prevention. You were going kind of hard on me. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing, one thing about you is that I've loved and appreciate about you is that you go hard in most things in your life. That's right. And, you know, one of our first meetings was on the football field. Yeah. And you were one of those guys that just had motor. Like, let's go. Yeah. You had motor and you had mouth. I well, remember I, I had mouth. <laughs> I remember I had to keep my head on a swivel because I had a mouth too. And yeah. I've been hit by him before. It wasn't no joke. <laughs> but, uh, but Linebacker. But tell us a little bit. Why, why do they call you Big James Games? Big James. Big, big, big game James. Sorry. Well, um, a little bit about it. Um, I think I got it. Kind of for the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> because like you said, I had a mouth, I had a motor, I had an attitude, I had a lot of bitterness in me, and I'm not the biggest guy, I'm not the strongest guy, so I used to try to go extra hard mm-hmm. to let people know, hey, I'm here. Um, and that's that's kind of why. How it transitioned, though, into something positive is because, like Rich said, some of those things I'm involved in, I go hard, and um, I was involved in a lot of stuff, so just try to give my all to everything. That's right. Yeah. One of the, go ahead, Jay. I was just going to say that, you know, the, the beautiful thing about you, James, is that it translated, it, it transcended sports. Yeah. Uh, Rich made a comment in the introduction about, you know, you being one of the most transformed people that we know. And, you know, I'll say that from the mountaintop because sure. I remember when I first met you, you had this like this rough attitude and, you know, kind of bitter yeah. about a lot of things. And then, you know, I was, fortunate enough to be around you when you had your transformation in your life and and you just became a a completely new person yeah and and you took that that energy that vigor that that big game into a whole new level of being of service and 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 help and support to people inside and uh you know it's one of the the biggest things i admire about you and i love about you Thank you. Yep. One of the things I want to share with our audience that they don't know is that, you know, we, th- this is our, our uh, ninth episode, but <clears throat> they don't know that I've been recording episodes for the last year. And I've been recording episodes with currently and formerly incarcerated. You were the very first person that I ever got a chance to interview. And it was uh, probably over a year now. Yeah. 
and we recorded three episodes, uh, probably uh, two and a half hours of calls from mm. the from the prison telephone system, and uh, those have all been edited. And before this show drops, we're gonna start. Uh, we're gonna air three of those episodes, and it basically goes into all of James's life story leading up to um, before he went down uh, the path to criminality. When when um, when uh, he was actually sentenced to 34 years to life, what that was like, what, what his childhood was like. And a lot of people don't, don't realize, you know, they just, they just hear the long-term sentence, but they don't know what happened when someone was growing up that shaped those early beliefs. And we could talk about that some today. You talk about that in, in those interviews. And then also when your transformation took place yes. while you're incarcerated and all the ma amazing things that you were doing while you were in there and waiting to come out here. And now we're so glad to have you here to have the video version, which will come out. I have uh, uh, 24 other episodes uh, planned. We have a couple of other uh, great uh, men that were sentenced to life at one time that are now free. And we're going to have them in the studio as, as well. And uh, Nate Darling's uh, Darling New Media Studio. So we can come here and, and spend some time, quality time. And we'll, of course, release those episodes as well. To We're going to call them the bonus episodes. That's right. All right, man. So now that you're out, um, I would like to show some pictures right here. And uh, when you were, uh, let's take a look. Yep. That was uh, day one. Day one. What All is right. that? What is that I'm pointing at? Oh, that's me. I'm, I'm pointing at, oh, that's right. Tacos. Gym Boy Tacos. Gym Boy. We tell, we tell our, our viewers and our listeners a little bit about Gym Boy Tacos. Yeah. So when I was growing up, um, Gym Boys has a unique um, taco. It has with the Parmesan cheese on the outside, uh, and uh, me and Jason Bryant were <laughs> on the yard talking about Jim Boy's tacos. And uh, originally, I was supposed to come home before Jay. Mm. And one of the things that I was going to do was wait to go to Jim Boy's until Jay came home. However, mm. Jay got some great news. Yes, He came home before me, and he was so committed to me and our friendship that he waited. To go to gym, boys. Even though people were tempting, like Rich, like Rich and Ted, <laughs> yeah, um, he waited. And so the first day we got out, we went to gym, boys together. There it is. And uh, they say the blessings in the company. So mm -hmm. it's not the meal; it doesn't matter what you eat, but the blessing is the company. And um, that's what I see right there. That's my right. friends, my brothers, my new sister. That's right. You man. know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if we could go to the next one, but I also want to say that. You know, uh, I've been out here. I've got to eat a lot of tacos out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and if I'm going to choose to go some some tacos, it's not going to be gym boys. It's going to be a taqueria or a, or a taco truck. But I was self-proclaimed burrito king in prison, and uh, James was the best uh, taco maker ever, and his tacos were way better than gym boys. I don't understand the whole Parmesan cheese thing on the outside of a fried corn tortilla. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, hey, we were there. It was where he wanted to go. It was yeah. what was important. Uh, what do you think, James? What do you see? Uh, man, just happiness, just uh, that was you know, day relief, one. Relief, relief, that's what I see right there. Um, still, still digesting the information that I was actually out because for a long time I didn't believe that I would ever be out of prison, and so I think that's what it is right there. How many hours had you been out? Go to the next one. So I had been out what about three hours on the road, just in the car driving me and Matt. Um, yeah, three hours out. And I remember when we were in, uh, uh, when we left, uh, I left first, and then Ted left, Soledad, and then uh, you and Jay uh, were left, and um, and he always would say that James uh, basically became my best friend after you guys left, and yeah, and um, so I definitely would have felt lost without him. He was uh, incredibly supportive, and uh, you know, he, he he stood in the gap. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it, when you guys went home, it's two great men, two of the greatest men I know. You and um, Ted. And um, I think same for Jay. And so, yeah, it was a void there. But uh, we came together and we mm. clicked in a way that was a great bond. We spent a, not a lot of nights walking that yard in the rain, mm -hmm. um, you know, having some deep conversations. So it was a beautiful uh, time for me. Thinking about today's like today. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Is there any more? There it is. There it is. Freedom, baby. Freedom. That's sitting there, freedom right sitting there. there with our with our yeah. uh, uh, our director of business operations, Mr. Yeah. Ken Oliver. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. I even see a different look <laughs> in my face from that first picture into this one. Um, mm -hmm. It's like now, okay, I'm out. You know, yeah, yeah. It's it's freedom. That's right. It's time to live. You know, there we time. are. Yeah, crop organization. Crop. James right. will be the next addition to the team. Yeah. 
we're looking forward we're looking forward to you i know you got to go to the transitional housing but yeah. be the next hire and man it's yeah. going to be a, uh so uh awesome to work together again yes it is it's cool man yeah. there it is all right oh yeah let's talk about this one. Oh man what was going on in this picture so that was uh cnn had came up to do a interview and um story on jay not just jay but on the whole work that we were doing inside and um this was uh that day two of the kids that we had been mentoring um jack and um Jaden, they had pulled me to the side and said hey we want to take a picture with you we got to take a picture with you um when Jack, the one in the black shirt, he first started to the program, he was scared. He came up to me. I introduced myself. He told me he was scared. I said, hey, don't worry. I'm scared, too. Just don't tell anybody. <laughs> so that, That's right. that broke the ice. And we became um, great friends. Um, he calls me his mentor, but I call him my mentor. He's doing a lot of great stuff out there. And, um, yeah, so that was just an opportunity for us to share a moment together. Yeah, we were yeah. able to do a, a, a podcast episode with Jim and Mia. Yeah. And they're the ones who take in the students in there. Yeah. Uh, they just think the world of you, man. They send their love today as well. Yeah. And I send mine back to them. They're awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, today, let's let's talk about, uh, tell us about the lead up to your release. All so right. after 28 years, I mean, my God, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, I know what it's like to do 20, and Jay's 20 as well, but yeah. for 28 years, I mean, it's unfathomable to go in at 19 to leave at 47 it just really doesn't even make that much sense to me that someone could be there that long, but it is what it is. And uh, when you find out at your second parole hearing that you're going home, um, it, there's a possibility you don't because at any time the governor could say, no, I changed my mind. I know that the psych said uh, he did good on his evaluation. I know that the parole commissioners that I appointed uh, said that he is ready to go home and he's no longer a threat to society. But I still say no. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so being in so long, again, when I came, first went to prison, like most people that went back in that day, no lifer was getting out. One of the governors that actually stated that no lifer would get out unless he's in a pine box. So I had came to the realization or the belief that I was never getting out of prison. I had lost hope for a long time in prison, and I lived my life in that way. And so, like you said, leading up to when I was getting released, uh, before I got released, after I went to board and got found suitable, I was so excited. I mean, it's like a weight has been lifted off your chest. However, and everybody thinks it should be so great, and it is. However, they tell you when they find you suitable that this is not final. And so you do have the possibility that you don't go home. And I've seen it. You know, many people that I believe should have came home for whatever reason— um, some of our friends even, they said, no, you're not going home. Um, it was a letdown for them. It was a letdown for their family. I seen some of them um, even going to the little depression. So it's like a balancing act to be excited, to plan for the future, and yet hold yourself in a place where if it doesn't happen, you can still maintain and move forward in life um, and continue to be the person you are. Um with that being said, the COVID hit also. So the program was totally different for me. Um, I continue to work. I continue to put in work, to do the things necessary um, to add value around the community. Me and Jay spent a lot of time together before he left. Um, and it was a little different for me because I had what's called a confidential place in my file. It was a serious um, allegation, uh, and I call it an allegation because even in the confidential, that's what they say, alleged, suspect, suspected, but no proof of anything. And that's something very serious. Um, and so the governor could have said at any moment, hey, you're not going home. And actually, a lot of people I went to board with that went to board after me, I saw them guys going home. And so I hadn't heard any information. So, again, it was real anxious for me. It was real. Uh, I had a lot of fear. Um, but eventually I saw it, that, hey, no action. And so in that moment, that's when I really said, okay, now I'm going home. And even to the fact that the day I went home, the 24th, um, I'm sitting in R&R, &R and they're taking a lot of guys out. What's R&R? &R? So R&R, &R, receiving and release. <clears throat> you got to go through there when you come to the prison. You got to go th through there when you leave the prison. And so you have to get processed out of there. So I'm sitting in R&R from 6 o'clock in the morning to like 
12 or 1 o'clock um, p.m. And um, I'm worried because I'm like, hey, remember, I had a belief for a long time that I wasn't getting out of prison. So I'm thinking, well, maybe they changed their mind. Maybe something's going on. It doesn't usually take this long. And this is after you had the thumbs up. I mean, you're sitting, yeah, you're literally yeah. sitting at the gate to go. Yeah. And you're still worried. I'm still worried, still worried. Because um, 28 years of having a belief that you're never going home, it's hard. Right. You know, it's, it's, that's a hard to believe to challenge and shake. You sure. know? So finally, you know, they call my number. They put me in a van. They take me through all the procedures. And even in the van, I'm like, well, you know, I'm still locked up in a van. I'm mm. not cuffed. I'm not shackled. But I'm in this van. It has a lock on the outside. I can't get out unless the CO opens the door. So finally, I pull into the parking lot, and I see my friend Matt in his car. Mm -hmm. And um, I jump out, and I'm like, okay, now I'm out. You know, and I just give him a great big hug, and um, I get teared up, you know, because now it's finally over. Yeah. yeah. I remember Matt telling us that, you know, Matt had also paroled from Soledad, yeah. or he was taken out to court for an 1170D mm. hearing after 23 years. And, and when he went back to the prison system that the guard told him, Matthew Braden, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a CEO that we all know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of a lot of our listeners are family members of the incarcerated, and their loved ones are going to go to board, or their loved loved ones been in a long time, and they've been denied at board because of those things called confidentials, mm -hmm. right? So at any moment that any anybody who's uh, it could be it could be any of us, somebody drops uh, a message to. To who? Captains, to wardens. Yeah, anybody. They to, can give to, it to any staff. To counselors. So let me ask you this. How did you deal with it? So this is how I dealt with it. Um, and and it, it's crazy about the timeline that I got it mm -hmm. because I didn't know anything about a confidential until the day before I went to the psych. And so, you know, that's a big moment. The psych is your first introduction to the board. That's your first conversation with the board because they're appointed by the board. So everything you tell them will go to the board. So I get this confidential, and I'm like, wow, you know, what, what's going on? So I was victim up. It was, you know, it was in a time in my life where I was doing nothing but good. Right. So I was like, wow, I, I can't understand it. I don't know where it's coming from. And um, so I was tempted in that moment, and a lot of people were saying, hey, you know, just admit to anything. You know, that's what they want to hear. And I said, that's not me. I'm not going to admit to something that I didn't do. I don't believe I, I should have to. So when I went in there the next day, um, she asked me about it. And I just told her, I said, could I be frank? Should I cuss on here? <laughs> do you? <laughs> so uh, she asked me, she said, I said, could I be frank with you? She said, yeah. I said, it's some bullshit. Mm. You know, it's bullshit. It's not me. And I said, but I'm convinced. Because she told me we were going to be in there for a long time that day. And we actually did a four-hour interview. Um, I said, I'm convinced by the time you're finished talking to me, by the time you read my file, you'll be convinced that it's some bullshit. So let's go. And so we talked about it, and um, obviously she gave me a, a low, so she believed it was no good. Yeah. But for a lot of people, that temptation could lead them to want to lie, admit to something they didn't do, and it could be adverse for them. So my advice is just tell the truth, but live your life in a way where people will believe you when you tell the truth. So Matt comes to the prison that morning. He's the one picking you up. Yeah. And uh, you get out the van. What are some of your thoughts from going from the van into the Matt's car and you be, as you begin to drive away? Yeah, it was it was uh man. I'm like, man, this is this is really true and um I just couldn't wait to get get away from there fast enough, you know. It was like, uh, hey, we were going to take some <laughs> Did pictures. you look back? No. <laughs> <laughs> he said he didn't. I didn't either. No. Either. No, right. no, um so uh Matt was um like he had at, he we were supposed to take some pictures um in front of the, you know, solid welcome to solid ad sign mm -hmm. or whatever. But the CO had told him, hey, you take some pictures, it's a felony or a misdemeanor or something, so you better not do it. And so uh, he didn't even mention it, but we're down the street now. We're in Salinas somewhere, and he said, oh, yeah, we forgot. I said, hey, I don't care. I just wanted to get away from there. you know. So my, my thoughts were just get away from there as quick as I can. And, um, yeah, I was just super happy. What were some of the first things you noticed as you were driving down the highway? Man, just – the air, <laughs> the air was fresh. It felt fresh. It tasted fresh. And it's, and it's yeah. a fence. It's not like the prison's enclosed, but it just felt like the air was fresher. Yeah, yeah. Um, just everything was brighter. Um, That's called air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Haven't had that for some years. Yeah, it might have been. It, it might have been. But, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, just an amazing feeling. You know, every just 
I was just taking everything in. Everything mm-hmm. was coming fast, yeah. you know. Yeah. The colors, the colors, um, just the colors people were wearing, the colors on the building. You know, for years, we've been seeing the same colors. Right. Same mountain on the yeah. yard. Same right. mountain on the yard. Same exact colors on the walls. Same clothes, on, same clothes same. on our back. Same gray shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gray. So uh, the colors were amazing to me, you know. Yeah. That's right. I think about that mountain that we saw often. Um, I was there 18 years and two months. How long were you in Soledad? 11 years. 11 years. So you go to yard every day, same scenery every day. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think about the wonder of God, though, because even though it was the same landscape, um, there were days where it was so cloudy you couldn't see the mountain. Mm-hmm. Or there were days that, that it was especially um, cloudy where you could see parts of the mountain. And there were those very rare days where there was a little bit of snow on the top. So that same picture that we had by the by the master painter, he gave us a different look every single day. But um, I've never seen it again since. But I'll never forget it. Yeah, no, I'll never forget it either. Um, I spent a lot of, like you say, eleven years. That was the longest I had been at any prison um, while I was incarcerated, and uh, it was some great moments on that yard. I mean, yeah, prison is bad. Um, and it was some great moments of clarity for me on that yard looking at that mountain. So I appreciate that mountain. Yeah, for sure. James, what have been some of your reentry challenges since being released uh, not even two months ago? Okay, so, yeah, two months out, um, I don't have an ID. Um, I don't have a driver's license. I don't have a birth certificate. I don't have a Social Security card. So those have been some challenges for me. Um, the reentry um, slash transitional house that I personally uh, went to um, – was basically going lockdown, so no movement. Um, so that's been a challenge. Um, how much? How much of that, which you've shared so far, <clears throat> would you say is due to COVID, and how much of it is due to just poor infrastructure or poor like community resource once you were released? Right. Well, I'm, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, so I'm gonna say eighty percent poor infrastructure. And yeah, twenty percent COVID. COVID. Yeah. Wow. And um uh, and, and I want to stretch it um, because I don't believe the program that I'm part of mm-hmm. um, is designed for guys coming out of prison. Um, as you so, know, why would you be there then? I don't have no idea. You know, um, I would. You didn't. I mean, you didn't have any choice in it, right? No, I didn't have a. Well, I had a choice. Okay. When 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 they give you the paper to mm-hmm. sign your your parole papers, they have a lot of conditions of parole. Sure. And so you can choose not to sign that that paper. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what the outcome would be because I've never heard anybody not signing that paper. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I wasn't sure. going to be the first, sure, but exactly. I'll be the first to do some things, but not that. And so when they showed me the paper saying I was going there, I knew nothing about the program at that time. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to sign it. I want to go home today. So I signed the paper and I went there and I was ordered to go immediately there. Um, so after 28 years and 10 months, I had to drive straight there to Cash Creek, check myself in. And um, that's been my existence. That's been my place for the last um, two months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has surprised you since being out? So uh, I knew that media, social media, and I knew technology, you know, was was big. You know, we, we get TV in there. We get radios. Um, but <laughs> just... The amount that, like, no one looks up. Because I'm thinking, well, you know, people are not going to drive down the freeway and be on their phones or whatever. And, yeah, it's amazing. Like, no one's looking up. Like, somebody look up, you know. So this morning, I'm waiting at the state capitol for Jason. um, And people are just walking by. So I'm saying, how how you doing? Good morning, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so. uh, Eyes down. Yeah, it was just amazing. Like, man, like. You know, we build relationships in prison, and um, a, a lot of what, a lot of life is built on relationships, and um, it's just like media is taking over that. Every all of your relationships are on media now, um, and mm-hmm. it's, so what really surprised me was the lack of personal connection that I I think people have for each other. So is it uh you gonna go against the grain or can't beat them? Join them? How are you doing with technology? Well, I got my phone right here, <laughs> and, and I keep looking at it, glancing down at it. <laughs> you're so, being you're being assimilated. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah. What are you discovering out here about who you are? So, uh, it's a little different for me because of the program that I'm part of. 
I haven't been able to experience some of the stuff, you know, that you guys have. When you guys got home, you were able to, you know, go to stores, go to parks, you know, interact with people. Only people I've been interacting with uh, on a consistent basis for the last two months are the people inside the transitional house mm. with me. Um, so it's been hard. But one of the things that uh, I've learned about myself um, is that I have tremendous patience. Um, and even though I find myself, you know, giving in to the conversations, the inner talk about being a victim and how it's not right and injustice, that uh, the tools that we've worked on and developed they can't get me through it because I, I had some real dark moments inside this house. I mean, look, 28 years and 10 months, and I haven't had the opportunity to spend any time with my sister, with my mother, anything. So I've been really going through it, you know, um, emotionally. And um, I've learned that I'm stronger than I thought I was because if you would have told me before I went out, hey, you're going to get out, but you're going here and you won't be able to see your family, you won't be able to do this, I would have told you I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. But I've been able to do it. And I think I want, I want Jay to, to, to weigh in right here about some of the ideas we have about reentry, but some of these programs are stuck to that. It's like you're in prison still because they're stuck to that rigid system of we got to do it this way. We got to do it this way instead of doing it on a case by case basis, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, get to know me a little bit. I'm not in prison anymore. What's your idea of reintegration? Yeah. Well, well, I think it kind of plays into the whole perspective that formerly incarcerated people are just inmates or criminals. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, they're not looking at a lot of the returning citizens as people, exactly. many of which who mm -hmm. have transformed their lives and are prepared to reenter society and contribute at, at a high level. Yeah. So like when we're talking about some of the shortcomings of the program you're in, I think it starts with the way they're perceiving their participants. Yes. Now granted there, there may be some, some people coming into the program who may need a little bit more firmness because they may be, you know, a little bit more, on the edge of maybe reoffending or, or committing crime. But for someone who's coming out after all those years, who spent so much time giving and transforming their lives and trying to help other people transform their lives, why are you not treating them like people? Why are you not giving them space to continue to, to thrive and grow and, and reacclimate themselves back into the community? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. Yeah. It's like, um, I remember, um, Oh, I can't remember his name, but he's the, uh, head of public safety in the assembly and spe speaking to him one time. Um, oh man, I can't think of his name right now, but he said, he said, we need to trust uh, our backstop, our last mm -hmm. backstop, which is the uh, parole board. And they're saying he's no longer, we're no longer a threat to society no more. Right. We've done the work to, to be set free. These are people that are former l lawyers and judges that have been appointed by the governor. And then you get to a transitional house and they don't even have the same perspective. Sure. I can, you, you wait a minute now. You can't see your mom or hug your mom. Right. And, 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 and by the way, uh, if you're going to leave for an hour, write down your CDC number right. right here. Matter of fact, step out so I can tear up your room. Oh yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, yeah, so without going to, I mean, you know, yeah, 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 I, yeah. we want we want our listeners and our viewers to be fully informed about some of the things that happen yeah. when you come into a, a transitional or yeah. reentry facility. Well, yeah. and, and because our ultimate one of our ultimate goals with this show is to transform the way people think about the formerly incarcerated to mm -hmm. to we had on Adnan Khan a while, a while back and he, he mentioned that show Law and Order. Mm. You know, you watch Law and Order and there's three or four different kinds of Law and Orders. And by the end of every show, they got their guy and that guy got 25 alive and they're out there painting a narrative mm -hmm. whether they know it or not. They're painting a narrative. Well, we're doing the same. We're doing the same and seeing that we got guys coming out with bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, yeah. uh, movers and shakers who are coming out here wanting to make a difference in this world, using their time and their talents to 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 impact lives in the same way we were in there. We weren't doing this just to just to get out. Mm -hmm. we're, that's the that's who we are now. We want to be of service. Yes. So to come out to these situations where um, you realize that, man, I thought freedom would be um, a, a different thing. Why do people still have these perspectives that I need to be have a cell search when I'm in a transitional house? Yeah. So why do they have that perspective? I don't know. You know, uh, it's a belief. You know, I, I believe everything comes from a belief. Every action that I do comes from a belief I have, which feeds my thoughts. And so whatever belief they have, you know, is that we're lesser than or everybody's the same or whatever generalization that they're putting on it. That's what they're doing. Um, but to Jay's point, like, yes, um, getting out of prison after 28 years, 10 months, um, going to this facility. So, like I said, without going into details, um, we were placing a room 
one of the rooms in, in the facility. We couldn't leave and every every uh, participant there, and um, we couldn't leave until we um, urinated for them. We got search coming out at the same time they're in there um, going through all our property, right? So one of the most degrading things that I went through in prison, right, was having no personal space, no personal space whatsoever. At any given moment, any CO, young kid, a guy that doesn't like me, a woman that doesn't like me for any reason or just had a bad day could go in my cell, go through my personal letters, my personal pictures or whatever. Why? Because I'm an inmate. I'm inmate H99575, and I'm less than, so I can go through your stuff. I can do whatever I want to do. And so one of the things that really motivated me to get out of prison was that. And to go to this facility, which is supposed to be preparing me to be successful um, in society and transition into society and be treated the exact same way, I don't think it's mentally, emotionally, or any way healthy um, for guys to have to go through that. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And neither do I. Jay, uh, when, you, when, you, when we did the show with um, you and Ken Oliver, you talked about some of our idea, ideas about reentry with the crop organization. And, uh, I mean, it's a total, it's total opposite perspective. Do you want to speak to that briefly? Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, fundamentally, because we've lived it, we understand that, there's a limitless amount of potential for people who are incarcerated, especially once they make the transformation in their life. The value that they can add to their to their families, to their communities, it's it's immeasurable. So, I mean, our mission as an organization is to restore lives, to restore people's lives, mm-hmm. and we we have a fundamental belief that there's there's four ways we can do it. One, we can help them get their thinking straight. Two, we can help them get some skills. Some, yep. some skills for some some legitimate, good-paying careers. Three, we can get them employed. And four, we can get them housed. Stable housing, good employment, training, and thinking. And that's what it takes. That's the type of support that we believe returning citizens need in order to thrive. Will you be able to hug your mom? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can hug your mom. Yeah. You can hug your mom. And, and, and what's more, when you, complete, when you complete the programs that we're going to create, your mom's going to be so proud. Yeah. That's right. And so, you have a viable income. And you have a, So we look forward to sharing those, um, um, the, what we have in store for the future, definitely. Absolutely. Without uh, giving it all away now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you, you grew up out here, right? Yes. Sacramento? I, yes. What's it like to be back? Oh, man. So... Uh, yesterday, I got moved to a, other, a different part of the facility that I'm in, and so I was All able, right. to, I was actually able to go out into the world and um, see some things for the first time. So it's almost like I'm getting released um, the second time. Um, so we drove around Sacramento, just right. looking, you know, experiencing the new look, the old look, and um, some things are a lot different, and some things are still the same, you know. And so it, it was interesting. What was different? What was the same? So it's a lot of more buildings, <laughs> a lot of more people, um, and but also like a lot more homeless people. Um, I, I was really surprised at how many um, homeless people are, you know, around Sacramento. Me too. Yeah, um, even around the state capital. I mean, it's the state capital, you know, uh, and it's a lot of homeless people around there. State of emergency in yeah. California. Um, so some of the stuff is the same. A lot of liquor stores. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people hanging out, you know, some people uh, hanging out. I think they were there 28 years ago when I left. It was the same guy sure. standing on the corner. Mm. So uh, those, some of those things are going to be the same. But, uh, yeah, overall, though, it's, it's, uh, it was a great experience to do that yesterday. Yeah. Jay, you got anything before we hit another segment? No. Let's, All right. Let's, let's go, let's go back to the, to the past a little bit. Um, I think that many of our listeners might wonder, like, my God, how does a 19-year-old – I have a friend who has a 19 year old right now. He works at Home Depot. And how does a 19 year old come to be sentenced to 34 years to life? I mean, you have to get into all the all the details, but to be sentenced to that amount of time. And, and, and when you stand before a judge at 19 and you hear that, um, what, what were your thoughts? So it, it's, it's a, you know, it's interesting you said that I, I had a, got some the transcripts from my actual um, trial and my actual sentencing, and, and I was listening to myself or reading myself, talking to this judge. And at that time, I was very angry, very bitter. Um, I don't even believe at that time 
I understood what 34 years to life meant. Mm -hmm. My attorney was saying, oh, yeah, you'll be out in, you know, 19 at the most, whatever. So at the time, I didn't even really understand it. And so I was, like I said, I was angry. So I even cussed the judge out who sentenced me. And he, he actually said, like, hey, you're a very angry man, and um, I'm glad I gave you all this time. Mm. Now, that being said, how did I become so angry? You know, and was it even anger, right? Because one of the things through our studies, you know, of the emotions and men not understanding emotions and not being able to express them right, I found that we mislabel emotions. So when a child is sad, like myself, um, my father was in prison. He got out, went back. My mother wound up going to prison also. So I wasn't angry. I was sad. I was confused. Um, I felt abandoned. A lot of other feelings. But because people didn't know how to tell men or young boys how to have emotions, they said, oh, he's angry. He's mm -hmm. angry. So I just fed into that. Okay, yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry. And um, I just kept feeding that and feeding that. I also felt hopeless, even at that young age, and I developed that sense of hopelessness. And so you're willing to put yourself in situations where your life can get took. Um, like you said, I went to prison at the age of 19. Um, one of the things also that happened to me is I put myself in positions to be shot three times by the time I was 16 years old. Um, why? Because I had no hope. I, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe I should be living. You know, so that's some of the things, you know, that can add to that. Doing some of the work that we've done, we know that we form belief systems at an early age. And those belief systems, that, you know, without those belief systems, we wouldn't take the, the actions that we took to land ourselves that amount of time in prison. Mm -hmm. And I know that we are all people here that take full and complete responsibility for what we did and for what we caused. And if we go back, we, would, we wouldn't do it. You know, mm -hmm. um, We were uh, very selfish, self-centered. But what are some of those belief systems at the time that could allow you to um, commit a crime that could um, result in that much time? All right, so one of the first major beliefs that, that pop out to me when you ask that question is the belief that you don't call the police, right? We, and look, it's big right now. Everybody, there's a lot of people in the community that are against the police. And so don't call the police. The police will do this. The police will kill you. The police will hurt you. However, if your mother needs help and you can't help her, if someone's robbing you or someone's doing something um, drastic to you or your family, who, who are you going to call? You're going to call the police. So that belief can really harm you sometimes. And so how I formed the belief not to get involved with the police was when my father got out of prison, he was in the room beating on my mother. Um, she told me to call zero. I mean, not call zero, but to call my grandfather to come pick him up. I didn't know the number, so I went and dialed zero, and the lady sent the police instead. And so when they took him out the apartment, he was mad. She was mad. Um, she called my my mother, called my grandparents. They were mad at me. Um, I have no relationship with my father or my that side of my family until this day. And do I know if that's why? I don't know. But I just know I don't have a relationship with them. They've never reached out to me. And so... At a very early age, I started forming a belief, okay, you don't get the police involved. You don't get anybody involved in your business. So you fast forward, and what that belief leads to is when someone pulls a gun out on me, I don't call the police. I don't call anybody. I get a gun, and I handle it myself because I had another belief was that violence solves things because, remember, my father had a problem with my mother. He was beating my mother. My mother, she went to prison because she had a problem with a lady and she stabbed her, you know, and those are just two of the incidents, but there was many more that helped foster that belief. So seeing that type of stuff, knowing that you don't get people involved in your business led to me be, being willing to commit that vicious crime. So then, then you're, you're sentenced, you yes. know, you, you commit murder, you're yes. 19, you're sentenced to all this time, Yes. you go to prison. Did things change right away? No, because I still had the same belief. Okay. I still had the same thinking. Remember, um, so before I went to prison, before I um, committed my crime, after my mother went to a prison, um, you know, I was shipped around from house to house. I was also put in um, group homes. And so I had this idea about the system. First of all, they took my dad away. Um, 
he told me, you know, they're, they're not good. She told me not to call the police. So all it's not just the police. It's the whole system. Right. It's this bad. And so the, the, the court system, I still believe. I didn't believe that I was guilty of first-degree murder when I first went to prison. I had got shot. Right. So how was I guilty of first-degree murder? This was the belief that I was feeding. And so when I went in there, hey, I deserve to break the rules. I deserve to be as violent and as criminal as I want to be because I shouldn't even be here. Right. They did me wrong. Yeah, they did me wrong. Right. So I continued down that <clears throat> same path. Mm-hmm. You know, I continued to the fact where I got 15 115s, you know, 5, 6, 128s, been to the whole numerous of times, and which eventually led to me getting um, denied parole after 23 years for five years. Right. So what changed for you? What changed for me is me. How, how, how did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> how did it happen? Yeah, so, I think this is an important part, too, yeah, because yeah. And, and to tell when uh, how long you had been in before your transformation takes place, because we know that a lot of our listeners there have loved ones and they've been there 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And they're still doing the same thing, still gangbanging, still using drugs. And they're like, man, is my loved one ever going to change? Yeah. So um, there's a quote I had read a long time ago, and it says, the children who need the most love ask for it in the most unloving ways. Mm. Right? So that's not just true to children. That's anybody. Because most of us have childish emotional states anyway, right? And so when you, the people that really need the love, they're going to ask for it like that. They're going to they're going to do drugs. They're going to commit crimes. They're going to find ways to keep themselves in prison, right? Because they're not really understanding what they're doing. Um, and it's easy to say, well, he's 25, he's 26, he should know better. But if he still has that same belief system, he doesn't know better. And so my thing is just don't give up on him. Don't give up on him because, again, it took me 20 years, 20 years to finally get it. And it doesn't matter. And why I said I had to change was because sometimes you think, okay, I'm going to move to a different neighborhood. Right. Or I'm going to move. I'm going to transfer to a different prison. You know, all, these, all this stuff keeps happening to me here. So I'm going to transfer there. I'm going to move to a different block. I'm going to move to a different cell. Well, I did all that, and I continued to get in trouble. It wasn't my environment. It was me. And so once I started changing my perspective on things, things changed for me. Did you have an aha moment? Yes. Um, so one, one, of, one, I had a couple, but one of my aha moments is in the book "Men Built for Others," and it was a guy. He was a lifer. Mm-hmm. He was going home. He had already been found suitable, and he was helping me do some tournaments on the yard. And so it was a holiday, and so our supervisor wasn't going to come back before he went home. He was on vacation, and so he told me, "Hey, James, make sure my." Chrono gets in my file. What's the chrono? And so it's what, like what's the chrono? It's it's you know like a certificate saying yeah, you yeah. did good. Yeah, yeah. You know, hey, hey, this is what this guy did. Yeah. And so for lifers, they're very important. Sure. Why? Because you have to show what you've been doing. You yeah. can't just go in there and say, hey, yeah, I've been doing great. You know, right. let, let me go. Yeah. Where's the it's, documentation? Where, where's the proof? Because yeah, the only proof that. we have is your court records. Right. You know your your charges. So you have to have that stuff documented. And so a chrono documents what you've been doing. And so he said, make sure it gets in my file. And I'm thinking, look, you've been found suitable. You're going home. You don't even need it. Yeah, well, come on, bro. You know, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? (laughs) I've been hearing stories about you, you know. (laughs) So uh, he was like, no, man. He said, said, you are who you are, you know, 100% of the time every day. He said, but you need to figure out who you are, right, because he told me he was a programmer, and I need to figure out who, who I was. And why it was an aha moment for me, because at the time I had been telling my sister and everybody, including myself, I have, I'm doing everything I can to go home. I want to go home. I'm doing everything. I'm getting chronos. I'm going to a couple groups. And, but yet I was still breaking the rules. Sure. I had illegal cell phones. I had tobacco, which is illegal in prison. And so I asked myself, you know, am I doing everything? And who am I? Right? Because I need to be the same with everybody. And so at that moment, I decided, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the phone, I'm going to get rid of the tobacco, and I'm going to commit myself to figuring me out. And that's what I did at that moment. And then, and then, even after you made that decision, there was more tests. Because you you had made that decision before you went to your first board hearing. Yes. And you had made the turn. Like, like one thing we'll say, we we like to say in the work that we do is that transformation can happen in the moment, right? Change may take time, but you can make a different decision just like that. 
and you had made that different decision. You're like, you know, I'm going to give up the phone. I'm going to stop messing around with the illegal stuff. And you went to board and they denied you. Yeah. Right. They denied you because of all of the poor decisions you had made earlier on. Yes. And they're like, whoa, how many 115s? Yeah. Like 15, 16. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot, right? Yes. So how did you rebound from that? All right. So, yeah. I remember those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you're, you're absolutely right. And so, I, I got when I got denied, like you said, listen, um, I had to come to, to realization because in that moment when I got denied, I'm like, but I'm doing good. Mm. Hey, man, I'm doing good. Can't you see that? Let me out. I thought you were going to be found suitable. Yeah. Um, mm. When you came back, though, you had a smile because you you I remember you owning it mm. like I did. A, I, I left a lot of wreckage over the last 20 years. Yeah. And and um, well, go ahead. Sorry. Bro. No, no, that's that. I, I remember that. So I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so I had to come to the realization that, look, I did a lot of wreckage. Um, and just because I'm doing good now doesn't mean that I'm absolved of having to account for everything I've done already. And sometimes we're like, we're, you know, this technology, we got to get it now. We got to get it now. So I think just because I made that transformation, just because I've changed my life, everybody should get on board and everybody should, you know, put me on this pedestal or say, hey, yeah, you're doing great now. But no, I still had to pay for my past, um, you know, sins, crimes. And so what helped me, though, was um, like you talked about the poetry, um, after I got denied, I went back and I wrote a poem, um, just talked about the pain um, because it was hard. You know, um, it's like like for some crimes today, you, you get five, seven years. Right. So it's like a whole new sentence. You know, after 23 years, you got to do five more years. That, that, that's hard. Um, yeah. We're not getting younger. Um, my mother wasn't getting younger. Um, I was scared I was going to die in prison. Um, and that was just more evidence that I'm never getting out, right? So instead of, like, relating to it like that, I said, hey, you know what? I created this situation. I created all those 115s. I created going to the hole. I created a picture where they said, hey, we, don't, we need some more time to make sure. So I said to myself, well, I can create a different picture, and I'm, I'm going to continue to live the way I'm living. And even if I don't get out, because that is a realization. Let's keep it real. The possibility of parole means you can get out, but it also means you might, might not. You might not. So I asked myself, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be known as? What is, how do you want to be remembered? If you do die in prison, how do you want your niece to remember you? And I said, I want my niece to remember me as somebody that added value. Even if it's only from in prison, I'm going to add as much value as I can. And that's, that's how I live my life for the next five years up until this point. How important is family support? While you're incarcerated, I remember my mom, my grandma, my grandma's going to be 80 this weekend. I'm going to go visit her. Yeah. And I remember my mom coming every six weeks, every six weeks, no matter how they treated her, coming in with tears sometimes, every six weeks she was there. And that helped me to want to change my life. Yeah. Did you have the same experience or what was your experience? No, well, it was a little different, but I'm going to say this is very important. It's very important, but I had a different experience. Um, None of my biological family, except for my sister, came to see me. And then recently, I, right before I got released, my niece had came to see me on my last Thanksgiving. So that was awesome because I finally got to meet her. But over Al, Al Fulgham, my sister's father, um, my brother's father, um, who treated me like a son, um, even before I went to prison, he would, he would come to see me, support me. Um, and those visits meant a lot. It was some days that, you know, were darker than others. Some days you felt more hopeless than others. And so, like, waiting on a visit or knowing you had a visit coming, it would really boost your spirits. And so it's very, very important. James, you tell your story. I see you have the book Men Built for Others right yeah. there. And, um, you know, me and Jay and Ted and Matt helped put that book together. But really, you're one of the authors of the book. Your story's in Chapter 4. Mm. And, and in that story, you talk about uh, Al Fulgham. And what he was for you while you were growing up. Would you speak a little bit more to him? I mean, really, he was a, a, a men built for others. One of the only, I mean, if I remember the story right, one of the only positive male role models in your life. And when your own um, family, biological family, doesn't come to visit you while you're incarcerated. And this, um, I mean, he was your parent. I mean, your brother and sister's father, yeah. a stepfather at one time. But he continued to come. Um, uh, would you speak a little bit more about Al? Yeah, yeah. So he was a hardworking man, you know, um, 
worked every day, military man, got out the military, um, worked for Xerox for like 20-something years, um, went to work every day, paid his bills on time, um, saved his money, bought a house, um, just showed us a good worth ethic, um, taught us right from wrong. Um, and, and again, like even I remember like a couple of summers, my brother had went somewhere else to live. And so he was just there by himself. And, you know, I was running the streets, um, living at my grandmother's house, but I could go and do what I wanted. You know, I'm 13, 12, 13 years old, just living however I want to live. And um, he would come get me and pick me up and take me to play video games or just take me to eat and spend time with me and try to encourage me. Um, I had already formed a belief system at that time, and I believe as a young male or a young woman, you have a natural desire to want to be with your real biological parents and to please them. And so my belief at that time um, wouldn't allow me to, to accept that love. But remember the quote I shared, um, children that need the most love ask for it in the most unloving ways. So I would try to push him away, you know, because I wanted him to, like, show me that I was really worth something. But every time... Because most people, like in the group homes or whatever, people mess up. Why? Because they want people to come to them and give them some attention. But usually in our systems, people just kick them out, send them to the next place, yep. and do the opposite of what that person really needs or what that child really needs. Instead of getting the real help. Yeah. And so, like, like he was just a great man. And like I said, he continued to uh, come and visit me and support me in prison and subject himself to everything that it takes to come into a prison and visit somebody because that's not an easy journey to do. You know, that's not like a fun day at the zoo. You know, coming to a prison, you know, when you're a law-abiding citizen and be looked down upon for coming mm-hmm. to the prison to visit somebody, uh, being searched, being, you Walk know, through just this degraded. metal detector. Yeah, that's not an easy thing. And so that mm-hmm. shows a lot of love and support, man. And so mm-hmm. I, I can't even begin to talk about in my eyes, his greatness. Amen. And I and I and I bring that up because, uh, like I shared, those out there listening to the show, mm-hmm. watching the show, hearing the show, they might be visiting their level. And I remember Jay's mom going in and mm-hmm. them sitting there playing Scrabble together and yeah. and eating eating a salad. You know, yeah. and she's I still remember. the champ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's an amazing woman. Yeah, she is. And and, and then to to know that. Al visited you until yeah. until he passed away, right? Yes, yes. He had a rare lung disease, and um, and even to the day, he had to bring his little machine up there to see mm-hmm. me. He he would still come, you know. And um, it, it, this is a story like so. When I found out he had passed away, um, they called me to the council. I was at Solano. They called me to the council, and they told me, you know, because I I had him down as my father. You know, to me, he was my father, mm-hmm. and so they told me. Um, he had passed away, and so like the next day, I got a letter from him. He had wrote me a letter, you know, be- obviously before he passed away. Man. And because of the mail system there is sometimes slow, I got it afterwards. And so for a while, I I wouldn't even open the letter. You know, I couldn't open the letter, but I eventually wow. opened the letter, and it was just like um, it's one of the things that you know we don't we don't keep too much in prison. We gotta have six cubic feet. Um, a lot of things, you know. Um, you know, we get rid of, but that's one of the things that I'll keep forever. You know, it's uh, it's it's very important to me. So, what's next for you, James? Adding value. Adding value. Adding value. The same thing we were doing in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, adding value, finding ways to uh, use my talents to um, bring value to someone else's lives, and whatever, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever those talents are, whatever needs to be done. And part of a big part of that is going to be working with you guys. That's right. You know, <laughs> looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Rich made a comment a little bit earlier about um, some of your poetry. Yeah. yeah. How did you get into poetry? I, I want to know that. Yeah. And then, so like, then we want to hear one. Yeah. All right. So one day I was at Solano, and um, one of my cellies, um, who's doing some great things out there, also motivated to help others. Check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing some great stuff. Um, he was telling me about how he was just writing some thoughts down, like journaling. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, I'm going to try that. So I started journaling, and it just turned into a poem. It was like, man, that's a poem. you know. And so I just kept going. I kept going, started writing poems, and um, eventually you know, went to Sol- uh, Solidad, where uh, – 
they had talent shows and mm. all that. So, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So I get up there and spit my angry poetry, as Rich <laughs> like to call it. You know, talk talk, talk about the system and the man. Yeah, yeah, you know, it yeah. is what it so, is. Uh, yeah, so, that's an interesting uh, point, though. Your your poetry shifted with your transformation as well. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, yeah, because yeah. that's my thoughts. You know, putting putting on paper, and so uh, yeah, they changed a lot. You know, before I was writing a lot from a victim mindset. You mm-hmm. know, blaming everybody for everything, and um, afterwards, I started writing them about personal responsibility. But still, even they shifted again too, because it's not just look; it's a balance. You know. There are real victims in the world. People do do wrong things to people. Exactly. There are injustices. And so it's just about how we relate to them and what results we want, how I'm going to relate to them and what I'm actually going to do about it. I can sit around complaining about how bad things are, or I can be part of the solution. That's right. Yeah. Will you uh, be so kind as to grace us with one of your favorites? All right. Yeah, so one of one of my favorites, and um, it's amazing because we, you know, you guys had started the group uh, originally, um, Phoenix Alliance. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wrote this poem before, you know, I knew anything about the Phoenix Alliance. And then I wound up working for the LTOP and SAP program inside um, the, as being a peer mentor uh, for Phoenix House. Phoenix right? House. But mm-hmm. I got this poem called um, Like a Phoenix. And um, it, it just talks about, you know, at first just being young, being in despair, being sentenced to a long time in prison and not seeing a way out. However, um, you know, being determined to make it out and then eventually making it out. And I wrote this before I went to board, before, you know, any of that. So uh, I didn't know I was going to make it out. But uh, I knew whatever happened, you know, uh, I was going to do my best. And so it's called Like a Phoenix. Um, all right. So I've been gone so long. Even I forgot where I'm from. Read so many books, the titles and poems. Excuse me. Let me start off. It's all good. All right. It's all good. Y'all got all me good. on the spot. Now it's all good. Yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. All right, so been gone so long, even I forgot where I'm from. Read so many books, the titles and characters all blend into one. I stared at these brick walls so long, I can count every little crack. I lost my childhood a long, long time ago, and it ain't never coming back. My youth aborted. My prime, buried in an unmarked grave. I'm petrified the rest of me will follow, but I'm trying to be brave. I pray to the creator and hope he saves my soul, because physically it might be impossible to dig out this deep, deep hole. Every time I think I see light, here comes more and more dirt. I'm trying to be strong, but damn, it hurts. Cry so many tears, they can feel pool after pool. I needed to be punished, but damn, this is cruel. You can't take a child, throw him in a deep, dark hole, take him everything he has, and then expect humanity to survive. Aren't we a society of forgiveness and redemption? All those beliefs so far away, it's like we're in another dimension. But have you ever noticed that beautiful, strong rose growing out right out the middle of a strong rock? That's me. My heart refuses to stop. A little water has trickled down through this thick, hard mud. It's dripped into my heart and keeps pumping my blood. Like a phoenix, I will rise and fly up out this hole. No matter how dark or deep, remember, life can still grow. So as long as my heart continues to beat, I refuse to let go. Like a phoenix. Yes. For sure. Thank you. That's right. Wonderful. I want to conclude by by sharing something, James. Um, When I did our first interviews from the uh, phone system in there with you, our first podcast over a year ago, I said, uh, James, you spent all your 20s, all your 30s, and half of your 40s in prison. And now that you've been free, for uh, uh, what, what was your experience of that? And I asked you, what was your experience of that? And I remember you said, well, I'd see get, I see people getting out. I won't quote you. I see people getting out, and I wondered if that'll ever be me. I wonder if that'll ever be me. And I see you here right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's you, brother. <laughs> thank it's you. It's you. <laughs> it's you. Thank Man. you for coming on with us. Uh, James, thank you, thank you so concluding much. words. I just want to say thank you. Man. I love you. I'm so incredibly happy that you're out here with us. For sure. And so excited about the future. Yeah. Because uh, I know you're going to make some amazing contributions to this work. Amen. And uh, just continue changing lives, transforming lives. Thank you, brother. And I want to do something for the first time ever. Um, That book right there, if you could hold it up real quick, Men Built for Others. 
Um, we authored that book while we we're in prison. James's stories in there, Men yeah. Built for Others. Yeah. And um, you can get, find it on Amazon. And we've never dedicated this show to anybody, but I want to dedicate this show to a, a man who was a man built for others. Absolutely. Who was important in your life growing up, Al Fulgham. Yeah. Uh, we dedicate this to you, Al. Yes, thank you. Thank All you, right. brother. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.